my name is Julian, uh, and uh, I'm a church planner to Port Arthur, Texas. Um, <clears throat> my wife and I and uh, some members of our church, are uh, we have a team that we're going down there with, and we haven't officially launched yet. We launch on Easter next year, and so we are incredibly grateful for churches like you guys, like CW, who come in and who partner with us. I know that... Um, Carpenter's Way is a plant herself, and it just gives me this joy and this excitement to see what God does through faithful people who um, heed the call of church planting. And um, I'm, I'm thankful for Brother Jesse. Uh, Pastor Jesse asked me to come and to speak to you guys a little bit about the church plan and to challenge you a little bit about some things that we've been challenged with. And so we're going to do that this morning. And um, being that Carpenter's Way is a church plant, um, you know, I know that there's, there. well, I don't know if you know, but there's like many, many ways that people plant churches or come to the decision of where to plant a church. Some some people go to, you know, regions where there are no churches at all. You know, we feel like we're kind of doing that out in Port Arthur. Some people go to bustling cities where they're growing and an immense number of people are coming into the city and they just need new churches. And so for one reason or another, people plant churches. But I believe that the, the, I believe that the heart behind church planning should be the result of how we view the lost. So no matter where we go to plant churches, no matter where we decide to place a church, I think the, the very reason we should be doing that should come from a heart of how we view the lost. And one passage that has encouraged me a lot here lately as we've kind of been going through this grind of church planning um, is Matthew chapter 9 verse 35 through 38. You can turn there if you have a Bible or iPad or cell phone, however you want to do that. Um, some of the verses are going to be on the screen, so if you don't have one, that's fine. But um, let me just read the passage, and then we'll get into it. And this passage has been very much encouraging me here lately. It says, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowd's he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out the workers into the harvest. Uh, let's pray right quick. Father God, we want to thank you for the opportunity that we have to open your word, God, um, because we know that it is true. We know that it is without error, God. We know that you speak to us through your word, Father. And so I pray that as we get into your word, God, that your Holy Spirit would come and that you would reveal to us the things that you want us to learn, God, and that we would then in turn apply those things to our lives, Father, for your glory and your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So when we get to this point in Matthew chapter 9, this is a kind of a pivotal moment in the book of Matthew. As you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, kind of the synoptic gospels, they write about the same things, maybe not on the same exact timeline. And then John is just a monster all on its own, and I'm very thankful for it because that's my favorite gospel. But we're in Matthew today. And so Matthew gets to this point in chapter 9, uh, and Jesus has been kind of, he's hit the scene 
you know, he's hit the ground running. He, he is baptized by John the Baptist. He begins to preach that the kingdom of God is at hand. And he goes throughout all of Galilee at this point, and he's healing people. He's, he's healing epilytics and paralytics. And he heals um, Peter's mother-in-law. He heals Jairus' daughter. He heals all these people. And he's going around the whole town. And, and, and as the crowds are watching this, they rightly say, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel, right? Nothing like this has ever been seen. And that's kind of what you call an understatement, right? Could you imagine what it would be like in those days to, to witness some of the things that Jesus was doing? Now, you know, contrary to how da Vinci painted and things like that, Jesus was just a guy. Okay, Jesus just looked like you or me, and uh, and, and so it, you know I think we kind of got to give some of the people in the Bible a little grace when they heard about this guy and they saw this guy. It wasn't kind of revealed to them right away. They had to believe by faith, right? And so he's just a dude. He's not floating on a cloud or anything like that. He's not a superstar. He's just a guy. But they begin to recognize the things that he's doing because it is very much different from what they've ever seen before. And like I said, that's probably probably an understatement. But something happens right afterwards, right after this passage, and we're not going to get into it, but it's pertinent to what we're going to say. Right after this happens, in Matthew chapter 10, we read that Jesus calls his disciples to go out, and he gave them authority, chapter 10, verse 1 says, to drive out evil spirits and heal every disease and sickness. So, so what's happening here, right? At this pivotal moment, like I said, you know, we're kind of, we've come to this crescendo where Jesus has been teaching, he's been preaching, he's been healing, he's been going and, and speaking to the crowds. And he gets to this moment, this kind of pivotal moment that hinges on the gospel, and he calls his disciples to go out and do the same. So up until this point, Jesus has been teaching. He's going to teach his disciples how to preach and to go and challenge them to go preach. Up to this point, Jesus has been healing people. He's now challenging his disciples to go out, and he's sending them out to heal people. He's been teaching with authority. He's going to challenge them to go out and to teach with authority. He's been casting out demons. He's challenging, he's challenging them to go out and to cast out demons, right? He, he tells us, uh, or sorry, he tells them that they are going to do the exact things that he's been doing, right? It, Matthew chapter 9, if you, I read through it again this morning, just kind of that first part of Matthew. Um, you know, he, he's teaching them things and, and they're traveling with him and they're going along with him. They're living together. And, and that's the point of discipleship, right? He teaches actually in the Gospels how he does discipleship. The model of discipleship, Jesus teaches it in the Gospels, that you show people first how to live the Christian life, and you teach them along as you go, and then you send them out. Okay, my Sunday school class, used to, we used to have this phrase that we just said over and over, go make teach. That's the whole thing. Go make disciples, teach them everything that the Father has shown you, and then you go again. You go, you make, and you teach. And so here, as Jesus looks at the crowds, right, right before he sends his disciples out, right before, there's crowds gathering. And, and as Jesus looks into the crowds, it says he felt compassion because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. 
They were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. And the compassion of Jesus, it just keeps coming up over and over and over in Matthew, right? Uh, Matthew chapter 14, it says, when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Chapter 15, Jesus said, I have compassion for those people and they have already been with me three days and nothing to eat. uh, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. And what we discover is that compassion is at the heart of Jesus. Remember what I said at the beginning, right? Our our motivation for planting churches or to be a church as Carpenter's Way is should be for for how we see the lost. That should be our motivation, how we see the lost. And here we see that Jesus has compassion for those who are lost. Compassion is a pretty strong word here. And you would think that the reason for Jesus's compassion is because of all the crazy sickness and illnesses he sees, right? He goes out one way and there's a leper and he's yelling out and then he turns another way and there's a person there who can't see, he's blind. He goes another way and somebody's daughter has died. He turns this way and all these things are happening and there's all this sickness and poverty and things that people are, 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 are struggling with. But what moves Jesus here is not the physical illness that these people have, but a spiritual one, right? He, he wasn't moved as much by their physical need, but their spiritual need. Their lives had no hope, and their existence seems aimless, and their whole experience in life is one of futility. Why? Because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And as he gets to this part, He's, he says to his disciples, right, he feels compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And, and it's funny because as I was reading this morning, this isn't even in my notes. I'm just kind of reading through Matthew again this morning. And it kind of hit me because pastoral ministry is, is crazy like that. Um, you should ask your pastor, Jesse, or some of your elders sometimes. Like the things that pastors deal with on a week-to-week basis is, is nuts. It's just like somebody comes in one day and they're getting a divorce. Somebody comes in the next day and they're, they're leaving their spouse. So they come in the next day and it turns out, you know, that they had this criminal history that they didn't tell you about, like literally, or somebody's family member dies or, or, you know, and it's just, it's just, it's this on and on and on this pressure. And, and, and I understand it from a certain degree that as Jesus looks out and he's probably tired. Okay, Jesus is probably tired from all of this ministry that he's been doing. And this is kind of where I'm talking about the pastor's heart. He looks out, he's tired, but he has compassion, not because of the crazy mess that's going on in their lives, but because he sees a lot of lost people. And he knows that their only hope and answer is salvation from which he can only he can provide. Right. And so Jesus uses two different analogies in this passage. Uh, and, and we'll kind of break those down. First, he uses the analogy of sheep. He calls the people sheep. And, and sheep were livestock. Obviously, back then, they were used for a source of economy. Uh, they were used for food. They were used uh, to make sacrifices. And sheep, sheep are pretty dumb. They're, they're not the brightest animal. Have you ever seen that uh, meme on Facebook or, uh, or Instagram where uh, the sheep runs and gets stuck in the crevice? And then the shepherd goes and he's like trying, trying, and he finally gets him out and the sheep like bounces around, jumps right back in the crevice. Like that's who sheep are, okay? And, and when, but when Jesus looks out, right, what he sees and who he calls sheep is that sheep are defenseless without a shepherd, okay? If you have a pasture full of sheep and you just leave them out there to their own resources, they're going to get eaten, 
by coyotes or wolves or any other predator out there because they can't defend themselves. There's nothing they can do to defend themselves. And they don't know. They don't know where the predator is going to come from. They don't even know which way to go. They need a pastor, right? And sheep were defendless. Without the constant supervision of a shepherd, a sheep was prone to die uh, from all kinds of things. And sheep were raised and tended by shepherds who migrated their flocks amongst the hills and pastures and the streams of Judea, of Judea, right? The 23rd Psalm famously says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then Jesus later affirms this by saying, I am the good shepherd. And so he had compassion for the emptiness of the people. Look with me at Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 42. It says, when he appeared in Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. Jesus wept over it, saying, if you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. The multitudes were hopeless and helpless without the gospel, just as those sheep are hopeless and helpless without a shepherd. They were wandering about like sheep, vulnerable to the enemy, and no way to defend themselves, spiritually speaking. That's what Jesus sees. He looks out into a crowd of thousands. We know thousands of people are following them because in the Gospels, they start to number them, 5,000, 4,000. There was a multitude. The whole city was there. There's just tons and tons of people there. And Jesus sees them, and he, and he looks at them as sheep who are helpless and hopeless without a pastor. And then second, Jesus uses the analogy of farming. Are there any farmers in the room? No? Nobody grew up on a farm? I'm not a farmer, so I have to trust what the Bible says about uh, farming, right? I, I couldn't grow anything. If a zombie apocalypse happened, I'd be one of the dead ones. I actually got like a thousand rounds of, of um, five, five, six, so I'd be able to defend myself a little bit, but after that, I'm going to starve. Um, and, and this would not be the only time he uses farming as an analogy when describing people who need the gospel. We see this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the parable of the sower, right? I'm just going to read it real fast. Mark chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. He taught them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some feed, uh, seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell along rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and it grew up quickly since uh, the soil was, wasn't deep. When the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it out, and it didn't produce fruit. Still, other seed fell on the ground, and the ground, uh, and in the ground it grew up, producing fruit that had increased 30, 60, and 100 times. Then he said, let anyone who has ears to, to listen uh, hear. You see, the people that Jesus was looking out to, and the people that he saw as sheep who needed a shepherd, right, they were ready to surrender to the Lord for salvation. Now, I want us to kind of make a mental note of that. How do we know? How do we know that these people were ready to surrender to the gospel, right? How do we know that? Well, you only harvest once there has been something placed in the ground, once it has been watered, and it grows and produces fruit. You are not harvesting. Again, I'm not a farmer, but this is pretty much what I've gathered from it, that once fruit is produced, you have to go and get that fruit, right? Because if not, it'll go bad. It needs to be harvested, 
Okay, and, and once that seed grows, it's harvested. And Jesus says there are people who need to hear the gospel. Then they need to understand it for salvation. Then they surrender to Jesus. And all of this takes men and women like you and I to facilitate the sowing and the reaping and the harvesting. It's you and I that get to do that. And could, could God just do all of that stuff without our help? Yeah, yeah, he's powerful enough. He's God. He could do all of that, right? But he has chosen us. He's chosen you. He's chosen me to go and to do that, to take the message and to reap the harvest of the hearts that he's drawn to himself, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we see that he kind of uses this analogy. Paul does. I planted, uh, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth, right? And God has chosen to use those who are faithful, and this is the way he operates his gospel, okay? It is prescriptive. And that's why I'm saying when Jesus looked out and he saw that there were these people and they were lost and he knew that they were ready, they were, the harvest was ripe, it was ready to go. He knew that because the gospel is prescriptive. Look at what Romans chapter 10 verses 14 through 15 says. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? So they have to hear it first. And how can they believe uh, without hearing about him. They have to hear about him. And how can they hear without a preacher? Somebody needs to tell them. And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Listen, only those who hear, only those who respond and are saved. But they can only hear and they can only respond because somebody told them. Have you ever seen the... Um, the quote, and, and it's not a very biblically accurate quote, it says, share the gospel with everybody and when necessary, use words. You ever heard that? That's not very biblically accurate. Paul says in chapter 10 here that you need to tell them the words. You have to tell them the words about the gospel. You are the preacher. I, I'm not the preacher. Okay, I get that I'm preaching this morning or that Jesse preaches on Sunday, but you and I are the preachers. We are the ones who get to go and who get to proclaim. And we have to do that and able for somebody to respond to the gospel, right? And, and look at 37 again in our, in, our, uh, in our passage. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is abundant. There's plenty of fruit ready to be picked, right? The harvest is abundant. We can see it. Souls are ready to be saved. He says, but the workers are few. And I know, I know it's hard to imagine because we live in the Bible Belt, but there are far more lost people than there are saved people in the world today. Even here in Mid-County, there are far more lost people than there are saved people in the world. The latest estimate is that there's about 7.8 billion people in the world today. Let's call it 8, 8 billion people. And they estimate that out of these 7 to 8 billion people, that about 2.6 million of them claim to be Christian. Now, that seems like a big number, right? 2 billion. That's a lot. However, um, you know, they lump everybody in on that, okay? I'm talking like Mormons and Jehovah's Witness and things like that. Um, that's just, you know, even cult Christianity that we would consider cults and not actually Christians are lumped into this thing. But let's just take it for its face value. 2.6 billion, that's a lot. That really isn't a lot because then there leaves 5 billion people who are lost. So out of the 2.6, if we take that number at face value, which I think is much lower, then there's 5 billion people who don't know Jesus as their Savior. 
And Jesus is saying, I have prepared their hearts for salvation, and there are not enough workers to meet demand. That God's Holy Spirit is moving upon people, and he's drawing them to, to himself. And there's not even enough voices in this room or in all the other rooms all in Southeast Texas meeting this morning to meet the demand. Why? Because there's so many lost people, and there's so many people that God has moved on the hearts of. Look at, uh, he uses this analogy again in John chapter 4, verses 34 through 38. Don't you say there are still four more months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. And the reaper is already receiving his pay and gathering his fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another one reaps. And I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored, and you have benefited from their labor. (laughs) Look what Jesus is saying here. You and I don't even have to do the hard work. God is the one who has prepared the hearts. God is the one who has drawn people to himself, and he's simply asking us to go and to take that word to them. In other words, have you, have you ever like felt discouraged about evangelism and thought, man, I just can't handle rejection, right? I asked that girl to date me in the seventh grade. She said no, and since then, I hate rejection. Um, but listen, the, their response is not on you and I. We can't force people to be saved. We can't force them to respond to the gospel. That's God's job. But it's our job to take them the gospel, and God has already done the hard work for us. And this is my favorite part. Verse 38, he says, Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And I I love this part because um, I'm not a Greek scholar. But when we see this word in the Greek, this phrase send out, it is the Greek word ekbalo. Okay, I'm probably saying it wrong, but ekbalo is the word. And what that word means is to literally force out. Okay, and the the picture we get is like the picture of an eagle teaching its eaglet to fly. You know how they do that? They take the eaglet from the nest, and it's warm, and it has food in its belly, and they take it way up to the highest point of the sky, and they drop it. This is, watch the Nature Channel. That's how it happens. And they don't go after this little eagle. It is fly or die, literally. Uh, If the eagle doesn't fly, then it dies, and the mama doesn't save it. And this is the picture we get, right, of Jesus saying, pray, pray that God would take these people to the door of the plane without a parachute because he's got us, and boom, just kick them out. Like, fly, because I told you to fly. That's the picture we get. God said, Jesus says, pray that God would force people out of their comfort zones to do the things that I've called them to do. Why does he say that? Why does he say, pray that he forces them out? Because otherwise, we're not going to do it without God forcing our hand to do it, is what he said. Why? Because we're comfortable in the nest. We've been given all the food and all the nourishment, right? And we come to church every Sunday, and somebody preaches to us, and we go home, and we feel good, and we post about it on our social media or whatever. And, 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 and without that forcing, without God literally pushing us forward, we wouldn't do it because we're too comfortable. And I want to tell you a quick story about how God kind of showed my wife and I this, like, forcing and how that works. Um, when I felt called to ministry, I was, um, I had three kids and uh, my wife and I, and uh, we, you know, had a, 
we, we had a couple of good jobs. They weren't great paying jobs, but it was good jobs. And we were kind of, you know, living life for the first time ever. We're kind of financially stable. Again, we're living paycheck to paycheck, but it was all good. And I feel God calling me to go into full-time ministry. And, um, and so, you know, I surrender and I start doing uh, Bible classes, at Liberty Online. And I did that for two years. And one day, just kind of out of the blue, I kind of felt God like moving on my heart saying, hey, I want you to move to Lynchburg, Virginia to go to that college. And remember, I have three kids and a wife and a mortgage, and I got like, you know, $500 in the bank. And, and so I tell my wife, and I'm like, wouldn't that be crazy? And we, ha, ha, we laugh about it, like, that's ridiculous. And then she comes back and says, hey, like, were you serious? Like, like, what are you talking about? And I was like, I think God wants us to move. And so we started to pray, and we said, okay, God, reveal to us, right, confirm for us this thing if this is what you want. And like every sermon after that, literally, was like determining God's will and God calling you out and God forcing you out and all these things. And about the sixth one, I remember vividly, it was a Wednesday night, we both look at each other and we say, okay, I think God's calling us to do this thing, right? He's directly speaking to us. And so we begin to make arrangements. We put our house up for sale. We had a little house that we had about $20,000, $30,000 equity in. And we said, you know, this will be our little nest egg. We'll move to Virginia where we know not a soul. We don't know anybody over there. We don't have jobs over there or anything like that. We're just moving to go to this college. And uh, for whatever reason, I don't know. I still don't know today why God moved us over there. And so, you know, we, we kind of we get real close about a month or two away from moving. We quit our jobs. We train our replacements. We have a last day. And we get a phone call from our realtor. And she says, hey, the couple that was going to buy your house, uh, it fell through. They're getting a divorce. And we're not going to be able to sell your house. Now, I'm a month away from moving. I have no money in the bank. Okay, you can't move on whatever I had. And I hit the panic button big time. I'm like, oh, no, like I messed up. And so I, I start putting out resumes to all these churches in Texas. Like, like I got an associate's degree, da, da, da. I've been doing lay ministry for 10 years or whatever, and not a single response. And I'm like a weekend, like I don't know what to do. I'm panicking. And uh, I remember praying at my kitchen table and God, God literally speaking to my heart saying, this is the day you're going to move. It was like uh, July 2nd. Like that's the day you're going to move. And I'm like, well, I don't know if you know how it works down here, God. Like, you got to have money. You got to rent a U-Haul. You got to pay rent. Like, you know. And so we surrendered. We said, okay, God, you know, we'll do whatever you want. And, uh, and a tornado came through, literally. In San Angelo, where I'm from, San Angelo, Texas, we're at the tip of Tornado Alley. And uh, a tornado comes through. And I put on Facebook, like, hey, I'm doing some side jobs or whatever. I used to build fences. And uh, if you need any repairs, let me know. And I get like five fence jobs back to back to back. And we get like $8,000 in the bank. And so we're super excited. I get on the phone and this guy's going to rent us a house as soon as we get there. And we are just excited. And so God's provision is coming through. And so, you know, we're making all these arrangements. We're loading the U-Haul the day before. And I get a phone call. And the guy that was going to rent to us says, hey, like your application came through not good. He's like, we're not going to be able to rent to you. And I said, man, I'm like literally loading my U-Haul right now. I got three kids and a wife. Like, you know, I got to have somewhere to live. And he says, like, I understand that, but, you, you know, I can't help you with that. And so, again, you know, we, we kind of just had to bow our head and say, okay, God, you know, you know, this is all you. And so we leave. We leave San Angelo, Texas, on for Lynchburg, Virginia, homeless, with a minimal amount of money at this point. We've already rented the U-Haul and everything else, and you know we don't just kind of have all this money to throw around. And um, 
And, and so we get to Lynchburg, and, and we're looking for a home, and we can't find one. Apartments won't rent to us because we don't have jobs. We don't have a promise of a job or anything. We're just like, you know, it's hard to walk into an apartment complex and say, like, God sent us here, so you need to rent to us. Like, they're just, for some reason, they don't like hearing that. Um, they call the cops. No, I'm joking. But um, so we find this house, and it's actually outside of where my wife and I kind of wanted our kids to go to school, and and uh, and I turned to my wife. I'm like, you know, let's go see this house, and she's like, it's it's not even where we want to live, and and I'm like, well, we got to live somewhere, so let's go look at it. And so, it's this old dude who just handles like in cash and stuff, and he's he says, well, tell me about where you work, and I was like, well, I don't have a job. Well, t- you know, do you have like a promise of a job? And I'm like, not really. And he said, well, he said you can fill out an application, but I can't rent to you if you can't pay the rent. And, and it's kind of like one of those things where you go find a job and they're like, no, we're not hiring, but you can fill out an application. And you're like, well, why would I do that? Because you're not hiring. I need a job. Anyways, it's one of those pet peeves of mine. Like, why do I waste my time? And so I said, okay. So I fill the thing out, kind of like this is worthless piece of my time. I give it back to him and we leave. And uh, it's getting late at this point, five maybe, and we've been up all night driving through the road. And... Uh, and I told my wife, like, we need to just get a hotel, regroup, take a breath, and, uh, and hit it back hard in the morning on Sunday morning. And so we're driving to the hotel, and everybody's asleep in the car. And I vividly remember that I had my shades on, and I remember the tears flowing down my face. Because, you know, as a father, I'm a provider. I have to watch out for my children and my wife and the security. I'm the security, right? God's the security. But at this point, I'm the security. I failed them. And I thought, I misinterpreted God's word, and I have enough money in my wallet to just drive this U-Haul back home, you know, stay at mom's house or whatever we need to do. And I am defeated at this point. You know, we're 1,500 miles from home. We get to the hotel, and we knock out. We just fall asleep. And about 8.30 at night, I get a phone call, and it's this old man from that house. And he says, you know, just on a whim, I called all your references. He said, and, and I'm going to rent to you. He said, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to rent to you. He said, you can move in tomorrow morning. And we just are excited. We start jumping on the bed in the hotel. And we're like, we're not homeless. You know, we're so excited. And I tell my wife, like, we have got to go to church tomorrow morning because we're going to praise God for his provision and what he's done and bringing us through. And so we're super excited. And, uh, you know, it's a college town, so it's easy to find a church. But we find this church. And I'm just going to forewarn you, like, I am a church guy, so I judge every church. I probably judged you walking in this morning. I'm sorry. I'll let you know the list of things I didn't like. No, I'm joking. But we walk up to this church, and it's like, there's not, like, there's nobody over the age of 40. And they're all, like, in skinny jeans and stuff. And, and, uh, and we're just like, oh, what did we walk into? And, and there's fog filling the whole sanctuary. And, and uh, this guy gets up and starts singing a secular song to start the service, which I hate, by the way. And I'm just like, oh, man, like this place is horrible. Like they call this a church. And I'm judging the whole thing. And then in the welcome, they get up and they say, you know, you know, Brother Jimmy, he's out today, but you know Bobby here, the assistant to the the children's director, he's he's got a word for us that he's been working real hard on for about six weeks. And I'm thinking like, man, I could probably preach better than this guy, you know. And and so the whole time I'm sitting there just judging the whole thing. Like my wife's telling me to shut up, and I'm just like telling her all this stuff. And this guy gets up to preach, and he starts talking about how God gave him this message about Abraham, 
and how God called Abraham away from his home without knowing where he was going to go. God told Abraham to move his family and to trust in him and to have this blind faith. And I am bawling in tears as he's speaking. And I firmly believe, and my wife's here is my witness, that that actually happened. I firmly believe that God, six weeks before my butt was going to be in that seat. Can I say butt? Uh, <laughs> that I was going to sit there in that chair and, that, and, that, and he gave this kid a message for nobody else in that room but for us that morning. I firmly believe that. It was miraculous the way God used that situation to confirm a calling on us and say, hey, I got you. I called you to this thing. I got you. But before all of that had happened, right, he took us to the edge of the plane with no parachute, and he says, I want you to jump. And we were like this, and we said, I don't want to jump. I don't have a backpack. I don't have a parachute. I don't have anything. I don't want to jump God. Like, show me the landing. Show me the parachute. Show me what happens next. And God says, just trust me. And, and, and what did he do? He said, hey, I've called you. And I'm just like, okay, I'm answering the call. Boom. See you later. You know, and, and this is the picture, right? This is the picture. Look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me. That's a real important part of this message here. Authority. God's authority was given to Jesus. He says, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And in Acts chapter 1, he says, you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be my witnesses, right, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He's given you and I the authority. He's given you and I the power. Now what he needs to give us next is a good holy shove to force us out of our comfort zone to do the things that he's called us to do. Because we're like the little eagle and we're not going to fly. Why would we? We're comfortable. And so that's what I want to challenge you with this morning, right? As God has called us and our team to go to Port Arthur and to plant this church and to force us out of our comfort zone, it doesn't stop there, right? It doesn't stop there. It, it, God is speaking to all of us this morning through his word. And so even though that's our calling, what has God called you to do this morning? Where has God called you? Where is God forcing you out to this morning? Maybe there's a coworker, right, that you need to tell about Jesus and you haven't done it yet. Maybe there's a family member that you know you're avoiding that conversation. Look, Thanksgiving's coming up. What a perfect time while you've got a captivated audience. God wants to force you out to do the things that he's called you to do because he has already prepared the way. If he says, go and make disciples, what are you going to make? You're going to make disciples, right? It's not going to be a lost cause because God has already provided the resources and paved the way, and he's moved on the hearts, and it's our job to respond. It's our job to take the gospel forward. Now, does that mean you're going to make 100 gospels within your uh, disciples within your lifetime? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe in your whole lifetime, like the parable of the sower, you're going to be a 30 percenter. And you're going to disciple and witness to three people, and they're going to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and be saved. And maybe it's much more than that. 
But what is certain is there needs to be a response because he is calling you to do that. And so I'm going to pray for us this morning. And as I'm praying, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray that God would make true these promises that he has given us to do because we're going to go out and do the things that he's called us to do. Amen? So let me pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father God, we want to thank you for your word, God. We want to thank you for the church. We want to thank you that, God, you have called us to do the impossible, God that you've called us, those who have been changed by your Holy Spirit, to go out and to spread your word, God, and to, and to preach to those hearts that have already been prepared by you, Father. And so I pray this morning that, God, you would give us boldness, that you would give us the resources and the ability, God, and the strength, God, and that you would take away all the fear that we have about taking your name forward, God, and that we would be obedient to the things that you have called us to be, God. I thank you for Carpenter's Way, God. I thank you for Pastor Jesse. We pray that his ankle will be healed, God, and that he can get back to preaching and doing the things he needs to do, God. We thank you for who you are and for the things that we know you're going to do, God. And so we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.